The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd like to return to the book of Acts this morning, and we've been trying to examine the characteristics and the attributes of a thriving kingdom, a healthy kingdom, and one of the most important aspects of God's structure of the kingdom of God is a body of Christ and members of the church that are excited about sharing the Word of God. And in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 8, this is after the death of Stephen, and there is a dispersion after the death of Stephen, Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Saul of Tarsus was there consenting unto the death of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It's very important. Except the apostles. Then in verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, who was it that were scattered abroad that whenever we're preaching the word? Just rank and file members of the body of Christ, right? Because the apostles <clears throat> stayed in Jerusalem. They went everywhere preaching the word. And you may be a little like, like me in the past and be a little nervous about that word preaching. I remember when I was um, beginning to exercise, I had a friend that I worked with and he was in a youth ministry in the past in a, another denomination. Uh, so he had spoken some and ministered some. And, and uh, we were, every Monday, we'd talk about church some. And, and he would ask me if I, if I spoke. And he said, he said, did you preach? I said, no, I didn't preach. I was, I was afraid of using the word preach um, because, obviously, if you preach, that makes you a preacher, right? Uh, and I, I wasn't in a hurry to be a preacher, not that I, I didn't have a Jonah experience and rebel, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really feel a strong calling at that time when I was beginning to speak. I was afraid of using the word preach because, you know, preachers preach. Uh, but what this word means is just to herald. It means, it means to make an announcement, right? It means to declare something to other people. And uh, finally... Mike kind of caught me, and I said preach one time. <laughs> he finally caught me in my words. Um, but once I really dug into the definition of that word and the Greek words that's used in the New Testament, um, all that that is describing is just a, a declaration of good news. And I think sometimes we, we put the preaching of the word, uh, there, there's a special calling that certainly certain men have that God's placed that on their life and given them a special liberty to speak in a, in a public way. But we should all 
be just so in love with the message of the gospel that it should just overflow and just naturally come out. It, it should just naturally be in our speech. And as I've thought about this this week and meditated on it, I'll just speak for myself and not speak for any of y'all. It's just, it's just disappointing the, the lack of percentage of my speech of where being a witness to brag on the Lord and discuss God's word, it's such a very low percentage of my speech. And I've really meditated on that. Why? 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 Because I, I feel like I love the Lord and, and I try to put the kingdom first, seek you first, the kingdom of God. And, and I, I believe in my heart of hearts that, that that is my highest priority. But at the same time, can that really be backed up by my speech? And it's just a reality. It's just a reality that we are already natural evangelists. We are. You talk about the things that you're excited about. You, you initiate conversations about the things that you're excited about and that you love, right? Uh, <clears throat> you go and you see a good movie, and who do you tell? You tell the people that you're, that you're close to, that you feel like would really enjoy that movie. To, you naturally initiate a conversation to tell other people about things that you're excited about and things that you love, right? I mean, uh, and the more you love it, the more you love the person that you're bragging on, it doesn't matter who you're around, you're going to talk about them, right? I mean, uh, I know people and they, they love their kids and I'll tell you, they will talk to total strangers about everything that their kids, and that's great, you know, I mean, if your kid's, you know, doing great, ain't no problem with, with telling people about it, right? Uh, but we're very eager and excited to discuss those kind of things very proactively. We naturally tell people about the things that are the most important to us that we love and that we get excited about, right? We naturally do that. So therefore, why in my speech does the gospel not come up more? Um, a lot of the things we're talking about here in the book of Acts <clears throat> are all just effects and symptoms, okay? Um, I'm not telling you, this is not a lecture, for, you to say, for me to go tell you that you've got to go talk to five different people about Christ this week. That's not the point, okay? The point is that, is that this should be a natural expression of just being in love with the Lord and being excited about the gospel, right? And what we find in the book of Acts is that this is a church that was in its first love. And boy, they were in such first love that everybody that they came in contact with, they wanted to tell them about the good news that was blessing their life. And I'm so thankful to have been raised in a godly home and been raised up in the church and not have been in, down in, the, in the, the depths of the pig pen before I came back to the Father's house. But these were people that came from horrible lifestyles. And the gospel meant a lot to these people, okay? They were excited about it. I mean, these were the people... You don't have to turn here, but um, 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think we kind of lose sight of the power of the gospel and the power of what these people were experiencing when these men came into their cities and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified and him resurrected. And then they were baptized and they felt that answer of a good conscience and that, that powerful salvation and deliverance from the conviction of sin that is associated with believing the gospel and being baptized. But in, in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. I mean, when these people were living in such degradation and sin and ungodliness, and then the power of the gospel came in their life, such were some of you, but now you are washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. They didn't have to get up every day and say, man, you know, I just, I got to talk to three people today, right? I got to set a benchmark. No, it just was oozing out of their pores because they were so excited about a gospel of God's sovereign, unconditional grace, okay? And I'm just so afraid that we've just got so used to grace. We've got so used to the gospel that we're just plumb not excited about it enough that it's oozing out of us. I mean, do we, do we really? These people believe that grace was amazing, <laughs> Why? Because they felt to be the worst wretch in the, I mean, every, and I know we all kind of uh, feel this way to a degree. I think the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say this, that I'm the chief of sinners, you know, and we all should, should have a conviction of sin that, oh, no, I'm worse than Paul. But I'll tell you, these people that were coming to the church, they were the ones that had a, they could go, <laughs> bat, uh, go to bat with Paul about being the chief of sinners, okay? And when they finally heard the message of the gospel, that they had been saved by grace alone, and, it, and they felt that yoke of bondage being lifted off their neck, and they felt that power, they wanted to tell everybody about because they were just so happy. They were just so happy in the gospel. And I'm just afraid that we've got, we've got too used to grace, you know, just a, just a generation later, okay, what the establishment of the church in Ephesus is described in Acts chapter 19. Powerful, powerful display of the Holy Spirit there. You have people in witchcraft that are burning their books. It's worth 50,000 pieces of silver. You have the Temple of Diana that is becoming vacant, and you have the golden, uh, the graven image industry being totally shut down. Just amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit when those people were in their first love state. But just, just a generation later, just 40 years later, that was the church that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ told through the Apostle John that, yes, you're going through all of the motions of defending grace, but you've left your first love. Your eyes not, you've, you've lost sight of what you're doing. Now, they still used, and I've been guilty of this in the past, you know, I think sometimes we use the doctrine of election and grace as a weapon to just prove we're right of other people that misinterpret John 3.16 and other verses, okay? Grace is not a weapon. 
Grace is the good news that every single child of God needs to hear and believe. And I'm afraid that I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for you and the Spirit can direct your own heart. But I'm afraid that we've become too used to grace. I have in the back of my Bible uh, the lyrics um, from one of the songs um, that is a popular contemporary song, The Wonder of the Cross. The Wonder of the Cross. May I see it for the first time standing as a sinner lost. We can get used to that. We can get used to the mechanics of grace. But when, when the power of the gospel of salvation by grace alone sinks down in our heart, it should come out. It, it should come out of our mouth. Do we love the gospel? Do we, and, and, and this is what really what it boils down to, okay? This is what's been so sobering this week. What it really boils down to is that I don't believe that you can truly say that we love God with all of our heart and soul and mind, but we don't have a desire to brag on the one that we love the most to the people around us, okay? You talk about what you love, right? You talk about what you love. And if I love Christ with all of my heart and with all my soul and all my mind, and understand, when we're talking about preaching the word, you do not have to go and give the discussion of the three courtrooms of justification. You do not have to get into all these technical things. Uh, there are so many situations where you can interact with someone, and we hope to... This is the lifeblood of the church, okay? The way that we interact with others and the way that we evangelize is the lifeblood of the expansion of the kingdom. And we need to spend some time posting up and understanding, because we have not been well instructed about how to share God's word with other people. But it's as simple as, it's as simple as just simply being a, a witness and a testimony for God's blessings in your life, okay? Hopefully, if we stay on track, we'll be able to get there, but uh, there's so many examples. Uh, but the wild Gadarean is probably the, the best example. Of, he was in such a, a horrible state. Jesus Christ come, and he, and he uh, expels those demons from him, and then he tells him, listen, go home and tell your friends what good things the Lord has done for you. Preaching the word and sharing the grace of God is just as simple as you telling other people about the experiences of God's grace in your life, okay? And I feel like if we're all honest with one another, I don't think that any of us would have a testimony that would go and say, you know what? I have done all these things really, really well and that is the reason that I am, I'm at where I'm at today. I mean, the reason why I'm at, uh, the reason why I've been, uh, I have not been blessed, but the reason why I have ascended to the point that I'm at is because of my hard work and everything that I've done. All the, no, I know what your testimony would be. Your testimony would be, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Unmerited favor. The story of our life is unmerited favor. 
right? I mean, how many, how many specific situations could you give when you're interacting with others and say, this is the bad decisions that I made that put myself in a pickle, but you know what? It turned out great because the Lord blessed me in spite of myself. You know what that's called? Unmerited faith. That's called grace, you see? The testimony of our life is grace. So when you share your experiences with other people, you are testifying to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that consistently enough, people take notice of that. And, and they, they, they want to gravitate to that. I'm so thankful that the Spirit of God has blessed uh, our dear friends over at Bethlehem Church in West Alabama so much. And Elder Tim McCool has been a great friend of mine. And I'm so thankful for that and, and for such an example of the simplistic pattern of doing things God's way and the Spirit of God will bless that. But what Brother Tim has always said is the best advertisement that you can have for your church is just happy sheep. Just happy sheep. Happy and well-fed. My job is to feed you, okay? Happy and well-fed sheep. Because when you have interactions with other people and they're talking about their, the conflict and the division in their church and, and you have their board of directors and there's conflicts between their board and between their pastor and, and you know, uh, people like the Methodist church that they can't decide if homosexuality is wrong uh, that when the Bible is so clear about it. I mean, you have all these problems in other churches, but when you talk about your church, we say, look, we're in unity. We love one another. We have blessed services. And you know what? Why don't you come and see? You know what? People that are in the middle of a lot of conflict, that's going to be very attractive to them. But there's another aspect of that is uh, come and see doesn't mean very much unless your manner of life exhibits what you're telling them. Okay? And what I mean by that is, first of all, we need to have integrity and live in a godly way that when we invite people, they want to be with us. Okay? But it's not just about being moral. We should exhibit so much joy in our life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I said the joy of the Lord is our strength. We should exhibit so much joy in our interactions with other people that there's something to back up when we invite them that they can see the joy that we have and they want to have a little bit of a taste of that joy and peace and unity in the body. There's a lot of churches that don't have unity. They don't have peace in the body. And if we just exhibit that joy in our interactions, now all of a sudden that come and see, what do you... <laughs> This is a sobering fact, right? Based on your interactions with other people and you tell somebody to come and see, what's their impression of what they're going to see, <laughs> right? Uh, are they going to see a happy, joyful, loving group? Or are they going to see some legalistic Pharisees that uh, have their nose stuck up in the air, right? Well, I hope that they believe that they're going to see a joyful, loving group of people because of our interactions with them in our daily life, okay? Um, okay, let's go to Acts chapter 8. We see here uh, that they went everywhere preaching the word, okay? And then let's skip to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. 
And then we see the rest of this story. Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad, remember not the apostles, just the rank and file body of Christ that were just happy to be saved by grace and know about it. Okay? They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but Jews only. So they had not received the message, the door of the Gentiles had not fully been opened. Cornelius, Peter and Cornelius, that happens just in the previous chapter. Um, so they were operating under the uh, commission that Jesus gave to his disciples during his ministry that only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay? They had not received the, the updated mandate, the updated commission. So they preached to Jews only. And some of them, which were men of, of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Again, just rank and file, members of the body of Christ that are, that are just happy to be saved by grace and happy to tell other people about it. And what's interesting about this is they go and they preach and then they're interacting with uh, some Greeks, actually. And then many people join to the church. And then, verse 22, the tidings of this make their way to the Jerusalem church. It, there's no indication that these people are baptized, so it doesn't appear there would be an elder there. Well, look, these people are excited about the kingdom, excited about the gospel, but we don't have an elder up there to baptize these people. Let's send Barnabas. Let's send Barnabas so he can, he can go baptize these people. So you have this, this expansion of the kingdom by people that are just uh, happy in Jesus Christ and happy in the gospel, and wherever they show up at, and by the way, it's a perfect lead-in, you know, to describing the gospel anyway when you show up in a new town oh, why are you here well i can tell you why i'm here because i'm a believer in jesus christ i'm a member of the church of the lord jesus christ and we're in, encountering some persecution here and we we felt the need to uh disperse ourselves from that they had a perfect lead-in to when people say where are you from and why are you here I'm here because of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm here because of the church. I'm here because of the kingdom. And then they have, they're willing to express that. They're willing to express a witness and a testimony of what's going on in their life and God's blessings in their life. And the Lord blesses enough that the word makes its way back down to Jerusalem. And they said, well, I guess we need to send somebody up there that has the authority to baptize these people. So they send Barnabas up there, you see. It's such a blessing to know. I mean, I believe that, uh, that God has ordained the ministry. God has ordained pastors for a specific role. But I'll tell you, the, the pastor is not the straw that stirs the drink, okay? The pastor is just here to serve and to minister his gift and to perform his function in the body just as you are called to perform your function in the body. But the church does not grow primarily by the pastor. The kingdom does not go, grow primarily by the preacher. It grows by the rank and file members of the body of Christ. And many churches have been blessed when, you know, some churches say, well, we don't have a preacher, we just can't meet. Well, 
I would say in all kindness, you don't understand the kingdom. Okay? You don't understand what we're supposed to be doing here if you don't think you can meet for public worship without an ordained minister to speak to you. Okay? Because the Lord is not dependent upon ordained ministers to be the sole means of advancing his kingdom. There was no ordained ministers here, and they had multitudes of people that are ready to be baptized, and then they said, well, I guess when you send Barnabas up there so we can get these people dumped, okay? And it's constituted church up there. What these people did, what these people did, which is what we're called to do as well, is just give our witness and our testimony of what God has done in our life. That is the simplicity of evangelism. That is the simplicity of evangelism. Let's back up to uh, <clears throat> Acts chapter 1. When I was in um, over at ICC and Baptist Student Union, uh, that's a very Southern Baptist-oriented group, um, I went with them some great people, made really good friends. We disagreed on eternal salvation, but... Had, had really good friends, and, and I, I believe I was edified with my time there. But it's interesting that <clears throat> I went on a couple of these uh, sessions where they were going to go door-to-door witnessing. And that's the term that's, that's associated with that witnessing. And what it is, though, is, is it's a tract that gives you, uh, you're supposed to ask specifically oriented questions uh, to make people, which is so interesting because it will eventually make its way to uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, the, the purpose of the question questions is to get you to the point where you feel like that you're going to hell, so you'll accept Jesus, which is so interesting because you get to the right verse, right? <laughs> all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but yet for some reason they don't pair it with Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, that you're dead in sins, you know? So they get to the right point that... Uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then they say, okay, now, but you need to accept even though you're dead in sins. But it's interesting that what they call witnessing is just going and, and going to people's houses and uh, asking these prescripted questions to get people to accept Christ. So therefore, as us primitive Baptists, as we always do, we always get terrified of that and go in the other direction. So witnessing is wrong, right? Well, you don't know what witnessing is? It's being a witness. It's, t- it's testifying of a firsthand account in your life, right? It's just that simple. So what were the disciples called to do? Acts chapter 1, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his power. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witness. Now, what are they witness of? The resurrected Jesus Christ. I mean, why was it that Jesus Christ appeared to these men? Yes, and it was an encouragement to them, and he spent 40 days ministering to them. But he appeared to these men, and he appeared to, from 1 Corinthians 15, he he appeared to over 500 men at once. Why did he do that? Why did he have over 500 eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Christ? So they could tell people that they saw him. Right? I mean, that's simple. I mean, if you're going to have a conspiracy, you may be able to pay people off. You may be able to make people lie. You may be able to make three or four people lie for you. 
but you are not going to get 500 people on the same page to make up a lie to create a conspiracy, right? I mean, people are just too sinful to, you know, to agree. Have 500 people agree on a big lie, you know? Why did he appear to these people? So when people, when they preached the gospel, which is what they did in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter said in the middle of this, in verse 32, verse 31 first, he, he seeing this before he spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh to see corruption. This Jesus hath raised, uh, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. So what Jesus did was that he appeared to men that people knew that he was killed, right? People knew that he was slain. And then he appeared to men personally so they could then say, I have seen him resurrected with my own two eyes. That's why he appeared to them. It's so that they would just go and tell people that they saw him. So when Peter preaches this, when Peter preaches this, any person in, in our natural mind is going to hear that and say, there is no one that can be dead and be resurrected, right? That's going to be the, the first, no, what are you talking about? Y'all are just creating some weird heresy. Men that die, they're dead. Nobody can be resurrected. And they said, yes, he can be resurrected. Because he's God and 500 people saw him. Do you understand that? The reason why he appeared to these people is so that they would simply go and tell people, I saw the resurrected Christ. Acts chapter 4, they've been thrown in prison and they've been threatened. Acts chapter 4 and verse 18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now remember, they've been commissioned to be a witness, to just give a first-hand account of what they've seen and heard. And if someone asked you, okay, if somebody came up to these apostles and says, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Well, you know what? If you go into a court of law and you're a witness in a, in a legal proceeding and you put your hand on the Bible and you say you're going to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God, and you don't tell the truth, you're charged with perjury, right? I mean, it's a crime to lie. So they say, listen, you can threaten us all day long. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you uh, more than God, judge you. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard, right? We are not going to lie, <laughs> Jesus appeared to us. He is the Son of God. We saw him resurrected, and the only thing we're going to do is testify to the truth that we have seen with our own eyes, and we're going to let the Holy Spirit do the rest, right? We can't convert anybody. We're just going to preach the truth that we have seen with our own two eyes, and we'll let the Holy Spirit do the rest. And the Holy Spirit did some pretty amazing things. 3,000 people added. 5,000 men added. Multitudes were added. By what? You know, these were not theologians. These were, these were, in the eyes of the Pharisees, unlearned and ignorant men. But you want to know what they did? They, st they stood up and said that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we saw him resurrected. And the Holy Spirit added 
multitudes and thousands of people to the church by people being willing to, willing to stand up and say, this is what I saw and heard. And then when they were threatened to be silenced, they said, listen, we're not going to commit perjury against the Lord, right? We're going to tell faithfully what we have seen with our own two eyes. <clears throat> so when we interact with other people, <clears throat> evangelism is just as simple as us telling them about the blessings of God's about God's blessings in our life. And I believe that we all have enough understanding, especially in the Old Baptist Church, that your testimony is not going to be a first-hand account of I did this, I did this, I did this. No, it's going to be God bless me in spite of myself. God blessed me in the situation where I didn't see a way out. God did all this. And if you tell other people that, people will take notice. Okay? But the first, your, your, your primary calling, as God opens doors and, and he, he gives you opportunities to, to talk with people uh, that maybe you don't know as well and build relationships with them, uh, you need to take advantage of those opportunities as God, as God opens doors. But the majority of evangelism is with the people we are closest to. Okay? That is the pattern. That is the pattern. What did he what did he tell? What did Jesus tell the wild Gadarene? He didn't go and tell him to go stand up on the on the street corner and tell him. No, he said, go home and tell your friends. Tell the people that have known the state that you were in. Let them see you now in your own right mind and tell them the only reason I am is because of Jesus Christ. That's pretty simple, right? Hopefully we can spend some time in John chapter 9 and the healing of the blind man. I love that story. Because Jesus heals him, and he is going and he's witnessing and testifying of Jesus Christ, and he doesn't even know that he's the Son of God, right? He's saying, look, the only thing I know is I once was blind, now I see, and the only difference is Jesus of Nazareth. That's it. And then you finally get to the end of it. You know, they're threatening his parents, threatening to throw him out of the synagogue. You have this back and forth between him and the Pharisees. And then Jesus comes and finds him after he's been thrown out of the synagogue. And he says, uh, do you believe in the Son of God? And he said, who is he? Who is he? He said, I am. He said, oh, I believe. You know, he was, he was testifying of the grace of God the whole time. And he didn't even know that the guy who healed him was the Son of God yet in his head. You see, what did he do? We cannot but say the things we have seen and heard, right? I, I'm just going to tell people what happened to me. What happened to me? Jesus Christ of Nazareth healed me. I don't even know who he is. He said his name was Jesus. He healed me. That's all I know. <laughs> Evangelism and witnessing is just that simple. Okay? Who did, uh, in John chapter 1, when Andrew, who was a disciple of John, and then he, uh, he understands that Jesus is the Messiah. Who's the first, people he, uh, first person he went and told? His brother. Simon Peter, his, his natural brother. Philip. Philip was called. This is in John chapter 1 too. Philip was called. Follow me. He goes and follows him. Who's the first person he goes and finds? His best friend Nathaniel. Right? That is who we're called primarily to minister to. And this is the pattern we see in the book of Acts, too. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. 
in the church and in the kingdom, it's very important that we understand that the, the primary unit in the church is the family. Okay? God ordained the family prior to the church. He ordained the family prior to civil government. The family is the first structural unit that the Lord ordained in this world. Okay? And the church and the kingdom is made up of individual families. We serve God in a family together. What the church is, is a collection of individual families. And here in Cornelius, <clears throat> Cornelius's case, he was already serving God very devoutly with the knowledge that he had. Now, uh, we always have to make the point as we go through this, I believe it's very important to, to note that Cornelius was already born again prior to Peter showing up. He's a classic example, not a Jew that's addressed in, in Romans chapter 10, but he's a Gentile that is in the exact same boat. He had a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, right? This is a man that was a devout man, verse 2, Acts chapter 10, verse 2. He was a devout man, and notice, he already feared God with all his house. He raised his children with the knowledge that he had in the moment. Maybe it was... Maybe it was just that internal law in his, in his heart. He may not. He probably didn't have a tremendous amount of interaction uh, with the Jewish law. But he served God in his home, and, and all of his children were raised with a reverence of his understanding at the moment of God. And he prayed to God always. <clears throat> then he sees a vision. He sends for Peter. He, the Lord tells him to send for Peter, and then Peter also sees a vision that confirms to him that he needs to go and minister to them. But I want you to notice what Cornelius' reaction was when he, he sent messengers, okay? He had a vision. He sent messengers. He did not know when or even if Peter was going to show up. Do you understand that? This is not during the days of text messages and GPS and, you know, sharing your route with somebody when we know we're going to arrive at, like I said, he didn't even know if he was coming. Now, he had confidence, he had faith in God, right? I don't think God's going to move me to, to send a messenger unless God's going to bless it. But when he says here in verse 24, and on the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, Cornelius waited for them. And who did he, who did he tell about what he was excited about, what might happen, because the Lord gave him a vision. Who did he tell? The people he was closest to, right? Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends, the people that he loved, the people that, you know, if, if this gospel that I'm excited about is going to be a blessing to me, the people I want, now I hope, I hope everybody can hear it, but the people I really desire the most to be blessed by are the people that I love the most, right? The people that I'm the closest with. So what's so impressive to me about this is they didn't even know when or if Peter was coming. So 
I don't think that they knew he was showing up at a certain time and, oh, everybody be here at 1 o'clock. They'd been hanging out at his house for multiple days, most likely, because they didn't know when or if he was coming. But who did Cornelius tell? The people that he loved the most, the people he was the closest with, and then they show up, and then Cornelius, in his ignorance, you know, just didn't know any better. He falls down and worships Peter. I mean, that's what men, men make very foolish decisions in their ignorance. You know, he doesn't know any different. I know I'm excited. I believe that I'm going to receive a message from God and he's worshiping the messenger instead of giving God the glory for what will end up being the message. And he said, listen, get up, get up. I'm also a man. All I'm doing is heralding the message of Christ. And yes, it's a blessing to to be the person that delivers that, how beautiful are the feet of those that, that preach the gospel. But at the same time, the Lord gets credit for it, not me. He said, stand up, stand up. I'm not worthy of you worshiping me. And then Cornelius says, he gives him the explanation. Of, I was praying. I, I, I was burdened to send a, a messenger to find you. Then I went and told my family and the, my close friends about it, and we're excited and we're ready to hear what you have to say. He says in verse 33, Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. We, I've got the people that I love the most here and ready to listen, and we are ready to hear what you have to say. And then, of course, Peter's response to that is, of a truth, I perceive, verse 34, that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. That I'm seeing evidence that these people are already born again, children of God. They just need some more knowledge. They need some more instruction. They need some, some light to have a better understanding of the life and immortality that they already have, right? And then... He preaches to them. The Holy Spirit comes down on them in a special way, and they end up being baptized. But what I want you to see there is that Cornelius was excited about the gospel, and who did he tell about it? You know, if the Lord opens a door for you to talk to a stranger, you know, go through the door. But the primary people that you are going to share God's with are those that you already have a relationship with. I want us to understand the idea of relationship evangelism, relationship evangelism. Because those are the people that are going to take what you have to say with a lot more impact, right? They know you. They, they trust you. They know some of the struggles you've had. And when people that know that tell you something that I believe that it can be a blessing to you, I'm going to trust them and what they have to say. Why? Because we already have a close relationship and I know that I love them and they love me. We have that closeness of intimacy. Okay, we, we see these families being converted all throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, we have Lydia. And Lydia, Paul arrives on the riverside <clears throat> here uh, outside of Philippi on the Sabbath. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we were... Uh, out of the city by the riverside, a prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the, the women which resorted there. A certain woman 
named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. And she attended under the things that were spoken of by Paul. And she was baptized, notice, and her household. They were worshiping as a family out there on the side of the river. She was ministering to God in her family unit, and they were there to hear the same message that she heard, and that whole family believed and was baptized and converted into the kingdom. Okay, now a little bit later here in Acts chapter 16, we know that Paul and Silas are beaten uh, they're singing and praying and singing praises to God at midnight. You have the earthquake and the, the uh, prisoners don't go anywhere. You have the, uh, the jailer comes out who's in charge of the whole operation, and he's afraid of being killed by the Romans if anyone, uh, if anyone escapes. And they said, don't, don't, do, don't do yourself any harm. Don't kill yourself. Don't commit suicide. For we're all here. And then he says in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. You know, it's so interesting in the general disposition of Christianity and free will, and, you know, God loves everyone, John 3.16, you got to accept Jesus Christ. Uh, it's up to you to punch your ticket to go to heaven. Uh, this, this is the verses that's used. How, how, do, how are you saved? How are you born again? How, how do you get to heaven? Well, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, that's not all the verse. <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions that can be very quickly alleviated by reading the King James Version of the Bible and reading all of the verse, right? <laughs> what does it say? What does it say? If you believe, you're going to be saved and your house. Now, if we're talking about the new birth, if we're talking about going to heaven, you're telling me that the, the dad's belief is going to cause his entire family to be born again and be saved and go to heaven? I don't think many people would attach themselves to that train. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a lot of problems, right? Clearly, there's a context that's different than the new birth and eternal salvation. This man was afraid of being killed by the Romans because the prisoners had escaped. Let me tell you, heaven was not on his mind right there. <laughs> what he was really concerned about was, you know, if he died, that's why he was going to take his own life. Uh, because if he died, maybe they wouldn't kill my wife and kids. Now, if he was still alive, they were so harsh back then that if they lost a prisoner, there's a good chance his whole family would be killed. So he, in his mind, in that moment, he said, it's better for me to just kill myself and maybe they'll leave my family alone. But there's a whole lot, a whole lot more salvation than just his personal answer of a good conscience and his personal deliverance from burden and conviction and shame that goes along with believing. There was a different atmosphere a different teaching, a different priority in his home from that day forward that was a deliverance and a salvation for every single person in his home. Now, it just so happened, it appears that, that um, his wife and his kids, they were children of God too because all his family was baptized. But even if they weren't, even if they weren't baptized, I'll tell you, there's, there's a whole lot more 
deliverance and salvation for a child of God that's raised in a good, godly home than someone who is has no controls and no boundaries and they just do whatever feels good to them in the moment, okay? It says in Proverbs that if you chastise your child, then you save their soul from hell, okay? You're gonna, by, by implementing discipline and structure and, and knowing there, there is right and wrong. I mean, the idea that a five-year-old that a eight-year-old, a 10-year-old is always going to make the right decision and not get in trouble is just beyond foolish, right? No, they need to know that there are things that are wrong and you have to be disciplined to, to uh, emphasize those boundaries. Well, even if, if his wife and his kids uh, were not baptized, they ended up being baptized, but even if they weren't, their house would have been delivered from a whole lot of uh, bad pagan ideas of the world around them by him being a believer. And you know he's going to love his wife better, right? He's going to love his wife better. He's going to be more patient and loving with his kids. He's going to raise them in the right way. There is a salvation effect in the home, especially when the leader of the home, the husband, when the leader of the home when he believes, boy, it's even, but it's even better when everybody believes, which is what happens with, with uh, this Philippian jailer. And I just can't read these verses without emphasizing the, the intimacy of this repentance that he was the one who was giving the command for them to be beaten. And then by the end of the night, he's the one that's washing their wounds. Because of the power of the gospel of these men. Radical change. Okay, now I want to highlight very quickly 